This is Radioactive on your Community Connection 90.9 FM. I'm Nick Burns, as always, on a Wednesday. It's my pleasure to be here along with, gosh, my boss, my producer, Laura. How are you? Doing well. And coming up tonight, some great conversations, Nick, that you get to have for our community. One dealing with the Topaz story and a new bill, but also the Great Salt Lake and a call from poets and writers to stand up for her. Yeah, we've got a really full hour. Um, I'm really intrigued to talk about this ongoing vigil for the Great Salt Lake. Um, It would be easy to make a joke about playing some sort of dirge in the background, but I think all of us with any sort of environmental awareness know that the lake is really, really suffering. So we've got both a scientist and a poet to talk about this vigil for the Great Salt Lake. Also legislative update, Laura, tonight, SB 58, Day of Remembrance Observing Incarceration of Japanese Americans During World War II. Again, most of us, I think, know about Topaz in the internment camp that was here in Utah. There's now a pretty interesting museum folks can visit. And there's going to be a display up at the Capitol uh, starting on the 15th. It's already up uh, that folks can go see about the internment. Also want to talk about um, And this is kind of fun, and I don't know much about this because I'm not much of a sports person, but Wad Masaki, whose number was retired, who played for the Utes way, way back. Um, And want to talk about him a little bit. His number was retired on the 22nd, and I think that's kind of interesting. So we've got a lot to talk about on the show. And we're going to get a few rallies and resources to get us started. It is February 9th. That means day nine of Free Fair February, Nick. So if folks haven't heard, UTA, no ticket necessary across its entire system during February when we typically have a lot of inversions and bad air trapped in the Salt Lake Valley. Check tonight's show notes as well as rallies and resources for a link to all the details on how to take advantage of Free Fair February with UTA, the Utah Transit Authority. Today is also National Pizza Day, Nick, and I had a quick (laughs) Zoom conversation with some folks using it to shine a light on helping out the Homeless Youth Resource Center, and that would be Kathy Bray at VOA and Joseph Dane of Mark Miller Subaru. Here's my quick conversation with them. So Joseph, it's National Pizza Day today, so you're doing something pretty cool, and I wanna hear all about it. But it's also to shine a light forward for National Random Acts of Kindness Day on February 17th. Why don't you start? Right. So we're trying to connect the top dots between two kind of unconventional holidays, if you will. So National Pizza Day, uh, we're all eating pizza and we are going to feed all of the youth, the clients at the Homeless Youth Resource Center and the staff um, as just a, a nice gesture, a way to kind of combat hunger And to try and engage the public, this is where we're connecting the dots with the Random Acts of Kindness Day. We're encouraging the public to do their part and to help out the VOA by either volunteering to serve a meal at the Youth Resource Center or to donate money to the VOA to help them um, pay for the food that it costs to feed the youth every night. Kathy, remind folks about the Resource Center, your capacity there. How many youth you have on a given night and the number of meals you have to come up with as a result? Sure. Well, uh, more will come today because it's pizza day. But in general, we have 30 emergency shelter beds for homeless youth, 15 to 22. But each day we have more who drop in for meals. And so probably see about 80 youth a day and 600 per year. And that's a lot of meals. It is. It's breakfast, lunch and dinner, plus some snacks for some hungry 
young people who are growing and transitioning from being a youth to a young adult. And so how do you normally do those meals every day? Do you have paid staff? Can people volunteer? How do you sign up? We do um, coordinate so many volunteers. We're so lucky our community really has people who are so giving. Um, during the pandemic, it's been a little tough, but we need to fill that schedule of volunteers to provide breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. And you can go to voaut.org and sign up through the um, Genius Sign Up system and come on over and help out, just like Mark Miller Subaru is doing today. So what's happening? What pizza truck do you have down there, Joseph? We're partnering with Bella Food Truck, and I want to give them a shout out because they're they're also a partner in, in this. They do a lot of philanthropic work in the community. They believe in um, fighting hunger and helping those in need. Bella Food Truck is providing pizza tonight at the Youth Resource Center, um, and we're going to feed all of the youth and the staff there. But I should say that it's not just uh, the youth, the VOA, and that's what we're kind of focusing on tonight, but the VOA also supply services to women and families, and they provide food services to, to them as well. So there's a big need and a big opportunity for the public to get involved. So Kathy, going back once again, folks can sign up to help cook the meals, but I'm guessing you also accept donations of food uh, and those partnerships to feed folks at not only the Youth Resource Center, but your other locations. We do. It's a different combination. In some places, food is prepared for us and dropped off at our largest location, the Geraldine 200 Bed Women's Center. But at the women's um, detox, uh, we do allow for volunteers to come in and cook in the kitchen and serve. Um, and then they do so at the Youth Resource Center as well. We also have pantries and we have food to go for people to put in their backpacks. Um, so canned goods uh, like uh, tuna or um, uh, the raviolis are, in, um, the youth like those. So all those types of to go, the easy things to take with you and have lunch at your job. So those are some great ideas, folks, if you're listening. Not only can you sign up and give of your time and help cook, but if you want to put together a small food drive among your your block or your civic group or your, your job, if you're all back in person, it's a great way to commit an act of random kindness on February 17th. We're connecting the dots from today, National Pizza Day, and the support for VOA Utah that Mark Miller Subaru is giving. And speaking of which, I understand that you have cafes at your locations, Joseph and uh, uh, the cost of a slice, you're going to be writing a check to VOA Utah here for that. <laughs> yeah, we are uh, not just you know, reaching out to the community, we're reaching out to our staff too. We have lunch provided every day at our cafes at both of our stores. Today, we picked up a bunch of pizza and we're and asking our staff if they want to make an additional donation and all the money we raise is going to the VOA. So one more way that we're helping out with our staff. So again, VOA Utah and Mark Miller Subaru together on National Pizza Day today, shining a light on what uh, VOA Utah does for homeless youth in our community and asking you to think ahead to National Random Acts of Kindness Day on February 17th and maybe hold a place in your heart for VOA UT. Show, uh, sign up to volunteer, to cook meals, to be a mentor. We'll put show notes. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes, Nick. And then lastly, on February 19th, a community reading of Irreplaceable, a 1,700-plus line praise poem for the Great Salt Lake. We've had your next two guests on the show when they launched this project. And Nick, 
they, Nan at least I know, has been camping at the Great Salt Lake to shine a light on what's going on out there during the legislative session. So I'm going to toss it back to you to talk with Nan Seymour and Jamie Butler. Yes, writer, poet, Nan Seymour, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for being here. And Jamie Butler, you've spent nine days on the lake, and I guess you call yourself a scientist in residence? Yep, yep, scientist in residence, and I got to be out there for one of the only snowfalls I've ever experienced camping. It was beautiful. Oh, wow. So were you were you camping in one spot or kayaking around or or tell me about nine days on the lake? <laughs> it was really cold. I have a, a pickup <laughs> truck that has a little camper on the top and um, it, it, it was cold. But, you know, don't don't let me fool you. I had a heater. I had an electric blanket. Oh, I had hot water. <laughs> um, it, it wasn't too shabby. Oh, nine days alone, though, with the Great Salt Lake. That's kind of cool. Nan, so river riding vigil for the Great Salt Lake. You started this on the 17th, so this has been going on two weeks or more, and you're going to keep this up throughout the legislative session. Tell me what you're doing. Well, we're here as a riding community um, to be present with the lake during the session, and the idea of a vigil is that when the life of someone you love is at stake, you stay with them. And um, I know that, you know, the word vigil maybe is depressing to some people, but what we feel is that it's really just the act of being present without knowing the outcome. And that regardless of the outcome, whether we lose a lake or the lake, we save the lake, which of course we're pulling for that outcome. Um, this is right action. It's right action to be present. It's right action to record the beauty and also to grieve the losses and to, um, you know, be here in community. So that's what we're doing. And I don't want to put you overly on the spot, but do you have a bit you could share and read for us? Sure, I could read you. Um, I love to read the invocation to the great poem. So the, the bigger poem, Irreplaceable, I'm just pulling it up here, is um, destined to be over 1700 lines when we read it a week from Saturday. That's wow. our that's our goal and we're on track for that right now if you go to look at irreplaceable you'll see over 800 lines and you'll see over i think over 170 voices are now in have contributed to what you can see online and i have i'm working with a backlog of praise and poetry that has come my way so i'm confident with some effort that we'll have those 1700 lines and the number 1700 is one reflection of what a robustly healthy lake would be 1700 uh, square miles in area. And so the, even that number is kind of a, a prayer of sorts. And if the, if the praise keeps flowing, we'll let it flow beyond Saturday. And we hope to have 2200 lines or let, you know, to keep going really until the lake is robustly restored. And so um, I like to read the, part of the invocation is what I'll just read to you. Um, because these words, I think, unlike almost every other bit of writing I've ever done, these kind of came to me and I feel that they came from the lake. And this is a way to hear the lake um, imagining her own recovery, like just that vision of if we succeed. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's important to hold that vision as well as the other possibility. Right. So I'll just read. I'll read some of this, please. When praise began to flow. When praise began to flow, we watched the water rise along both sides of the causeway. 
11 islands recovered their autonomy, microbialites sighed with relief. When praise began to flow, the dust subsided, metals resettled on the seafloor, arsenic and mercury were lulled back to sleep, blanketed once more by the great weight of water. When praise began to flow, three rivers rushed forth unhindered as greed relinquished its grasp and fat flakes of snow tumbled into the great body, becoming clouds, drifting into peaks, making snow and more snow, and then creeks, then rivers, then lake, and then lake effect, also known as sustenance, also known as snow. And the waters did not desert us when praise began to flow. When praise began to flow, we returned to fourth grade field trips, to picnics, run amok, spirited floats, and salt-encrusted bodies. Boats bobbed back to their docks. We recalled how to sail. We could taste our first kiss. We remembered a day we didn't die. When praise began to flow, we gathered and told these stories and a culture of disdain released its chokehold. Our eyes shone with love and even reverence when praise began to flow. When praise began to flow, we sorrowed over the way we had shunned her irreplaceable body and vowed never again to part from her company and the love we felt for each drop making a way to her whale heart became unfathomable. I'll stop there. It goes on, actually. Snap, snap. I love the repetition. I love the repetition in coming back to praise. And we're talking about a lake. It's pretty amazing, I think. Um, <clears throat> I understand that folks can follow you on Instagram, all that you're doing. Yeah, if you follow Nan Seymour on Instagram, you'll see the daily vigil report. And if you follow River Riding Collective, um, you'll get the invitations. There's a lot of ways to participate out here. Um, we have a writing workshop this Saturday. There's room in that workshop. On Friday, there's an online offering from an amazing photographer named Marianne Karen. Uh, her, she's giving a talk on how she takes these photos that you won't believe of birds here at the lake. That's free and online, uh, so really accessible noon on Friday. And we watch the sunset together on Saturday nights. On Sundays, we walk to the water at noon, and folks are invited to come out and join us for all of those things. Wow. Jamie Butler, bring you back in. Nine days on the lake. Again, you did have an electric blanket, and you were able to make you know, a coffee or whatever. But tell me what you discovered nine days on the lake, around and about. I guess, you know, I think a lot about water right now. And one of the things I thought about the entire time I was out there is how I could um, change my behavior in my daily life and use less water because these issues that we're seeing out on the lake are, you know, um, it's not hopeless. We know that we can conserve water. We know that um, we have some foundational strategies that we can use to help get water back to the lake. And we know that it's a lot um, in everybody's minds and hearts right now. And everybody right now is going to have to do everything is something I like to say that we all need to change what we're doing. And so I thought about that a lot. I used only five gallons of water while I was on the island. Um, I can tell you I smelled worse than Great Salt Lake when I got home and I wouldn't want to continue to do that. But <laughs> um, I, yeah, and I and I think another, I got to spend so much time with Nan and um, use my experience to guide some of her um, thoughts and wonderings and um, experiences at Great Salt Lake. Okay. So 
Let me ask you this, as, you're, as your work as the coordinator of the Great Salt Lake Institute, which is at Westminster, Westminster College, what optimism do you hold for what our legislature's doing and what talk and what action we might actually see? Um, well, to, first of all, um, working with you know, students, college students that I work with fill me with so much excitement and hope about the about our uh, future and the future of Great Salt Lake. Um, I the the politics of it. I think I've never seen as much talk. I've never seen as much attention in any part of the legislature at all. And to have a summit this year and to have lots of bills going forth, um, it it just is really exciting. And it's going to be cool to see how it kind of fits together. Okay. And before we go, I want to talk about brine shrimp because you just mentioned them. (laughs) Do you think, do you think, or, or to what degree do you think the money that can be made off the lake is finally part of this wake up call. You know, we talk about the birds, we talk about the wetlands, but it seems to me what it comes down to often is, or are the businesses that are surrounding the lake, which some of them make a fair amount of money. And again, the birds don't really make money um, in and of themselves. So do you think that's something that will help spark our legislative leaders, the simple business side? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the lake itself is worth over $1.3 billion a year, lots of that coming from mineral extraction and the brine shrimp industry. Um, I think uh, a, a really cool story out there is a story about the brine shrimp industry. They actually asked the state of Utah to be managed because they thought they were taking too much shrimp off the lake and not leaving enough for humans or birds. And so the, the state started managing them and has a very sustainable program that not only funds a ton of research on Great Salt Lake, but also has, I mean, really like created this very cool industry that's good for both birds and humans. And I know one of the laws that is going to be um, talked about is putting mineral monies back into support conservation of Great Salt Lake. So I think, you know, even just from a money side of it that way, there's going to be a lot of um, interesting, um, interesting things that come out of it. What a novel thought The people who are making the money off the lake ought to contribute to keeping it a lake. What an amazing novel thought. I know that I know that there's a move from some sixth graders at Emerson to actually make brine shrimp, the official Utah State crustacean. I kind of love that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you, I've worked. I've worked with uh, Mr. Craner's sixth grade class at Emerson Elementary in Salt Lake for a number of years, and this year they got really worried about the lake, mm. and um, they decided to write to their legislator. So their legislator got letters, and then I, one of my Westminster students, bless his heart, was um, studying one night and figured out that Utah did not have a state crustacean, and he really thought it should, and so. Um, Mr. Craner's class, along with Representative Rosemary Lesser, are um, putting forth this bill uh, to have <laughs> our <laughs> branch named as the Utah State Crustacean. And again, it, it, the, it's no joke. The, the brine shrimp make a lot of money. They feed the birds, of course, and we like that. But the brine shrimp, my understanding is they mostly go to Southeast Asia to feed shrimp that then end up on our restaurant tables. 
yeah, um, these brine shrimp eggs are harvested off the lake and then sent all around the world. And then they hatch these eggs and feed the baby brine shrimp to fish and prawns that are going to feed a, an increasing human population. Commercial aquaculture is going to be more important in our human food supply. So um, there's lots of linkages even to our, our the food we eat. Yeah. One of my neighbors years and years ago was one of the people who had one of those contracts and could harvest the shrimp. Um, life seemed pretty good to, for them, <laughs> harvesting little tiny, tiny shrimp. couple minutes left, Nan, bring you back in here. You've got this February 19th reading. Um, do you expect our elected leaders, our legislatures involved in what you're doing? Let me take this opportunity to formally invite them. Um, we would love, okay. we'd love to have anyone, and in particular, our lawmakers come out for this reading. Um, some lawmakers have already been involved in the poet, poem of contributed lines. So there's been some nice engagement, but we'd love even deeper engagement. And anyone's welcome to contribute lines. You can do it in the comments. You don't have to write lines of poetry. If you're listening and you're like, I, I care about the lake, just write why you care, anything specific, anything you love, any detail you love can make its way into the poem. So uh, please help us out. We need 1700 lines. Your details, if you're listening, will be a great gift. And uh, just to give a shout out to Mr. Craner's class, they just con contributed their own chorus of the praise poem that of course is an ode to brine shrimp. It's called brine shrimp matter. I just posted that this morning. They did a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful job with it. So they're poet, they're praise poets as well as activists. They're just quite an amazing group. And I hope all the listeners will sign their petition um, that they have. Maybe you'll put a link to their petition out. And, and real quick, you've used you've used the word we. How many folks are contributing so far? So far, there are over 170 voices in the poem, wow. but, um, but there will be over 300. I already know that because I kind of have this backlog of material I'm working with. So I, I think by the reading, we'll have 300 voices in the chorus. Pretty amazing. Yeah, Writer, it, poet. it is. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, no, it's fantastic. It's really Again. cheering. It's heartening to see so many people care. And let's hope all that good energy that goes towards creation can go towards some water to actually end up in the lake because... That's what I would like. So writer, poet, Nan Seymour, you have been conducting river writing vigil for the Great Salt Lake since the 17th, February 19th, Saturday, a community reading of Irreplaceable. Again, over 1700 line praise poem for the Great Salt Lake, 3 to 5 p.m., Antelope Island Visitor Center. People should probably come dressed for the weather. Yes. And of course, we'll put the show note in the show notes tonight. We'll have a link to the reading um, on the shores and all the ways for folks to get involved. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. And Jamie Butler, you are the Great Salt Lake Institute coordinator at Westminster College. Thank you for sharing your nine days out on the lake around and about and uh, keep up the good work. And it was really nice to hear what your students are doing. Thank you for having me. And again, shout out to all those sixth graders, the official state <laughs> crustacean, this little tiny, tiny baby, baby brine shrimp. Thank you for joining us on Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns. When we come back after the break, we're going to have our legislative update. And the focus tonight, SB 
58, Day of Remembrance, Observing the Incarceration of Japanese Americans During World War II. This bill would designate February 19th as the annual Day of Remembrance, Observing that Incarceration During World War II. And to get us there, from here, the new one from Carlos Santana, Joy, on KRCL, your community connection. Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Send your Valentine a love note on the radio. Valentine's Day is Monday, February 14th, and we're playing Cupid with KRCL Love Notes. Call the Love Note hotline and leave a message or shout out for that special person or even a local organization. Call 801-903-1279 to leave your love note. Then tune in KRCL Monday, February 14th from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. to hear love songs, breakup songs, makeup songs, and listener love notes on air. Find the number and details at krcl.org. We are back on Radioactive. This is Nick Burns. Want to talk about SB 58 now on the show for our legislative update. This is the Day of Remembrance Observing the Incarceration of Japanese Americans During World War II. This bill would designate the 19th of February as the annual Day of Remembrance. Ruth Sasaki, am I getting your name correct? You are the curator of Topaz Stories. Yes, that's correct. Thanks for having us on the show, by the way. Oh, my pleasure. You're a California-based writer, and you are the editor of Topaz Stories Project, which is a collection of 70 stories by survivors of the World War II concentration camp for Japanese Americans in Topaz, Utah. You're the curator of the Topaz Story exhibit, which is currently on display up at the Capitol building through this entire year. So real quickly, Topaz stories, I want to talk about that, but just Topaz was one of many concentration camps. And I wanted to know, do you have a family or a personal connection to Topaz or the camps in general? I do. My mother's entire family, her parents, her older sister and her younger brother, plus uh, other extended family members were all incarcerated in Topaz for three years. And, and did they come from one particular place, San Francisco or Portland, or were they gathered from all over and, you know, concentrated here, they, in a word? They were all from San Francisco. And I think most of the Japanese Americans in the San Francisco Bay Area ended up in Topaz. And after their incarceration, their concentration in Topaz, back to San Francisco or to Salt Lake? Uh, my entire family re- returned to California and okay. settled in San Francisco. Because I know, I mean, many, many, many lives disrupted. I know of stories of, of Japanese American uh, farmers up in Oregon whose lands were just ripped away, stores were ripped away, lives were destroyed, and many people never made it back to where they were from. Yeah, I think my family had very deep roots in San Francisco, and my, and my grandfather had had a store before the war, which he lost, of course, but there was no farm or land or anything to return to. However, they they really, you know, San Francisco was their home. And actually, my mother never left. Oh, interesting. You know, she, yeah, she spent her whole life in San Francisco, except for the three years in Utah. 
Interesting. Many, many families of Japanese Americans after the war and after the concentration camps didn't talk about it. Was that true in your family? It just sort of disappeared from family history? That was pretty much true. They, they sometimes mentioned camp, but it was usually in the context of someone that they knew in camp or something usually funny that had happened, you know, in camp. And there was never any political context Interesting. Um, discussed or anything like that. Um, my, my aunt, Keo, um, was a great storyteller and she would tell stories at every family gathering, but her stories mainly focused on the Japanese American community before the war. Uh -huh. And so I didn't hear very much about the camps as I was growing up until later. Yeah, I, it seems like for many families, it's the grandchildren who then took up the story or were had the interest, whereas the children, maybe themselves young in the camps, didn't so much talk about it, at least from other folks I've talked to. So I, I do want to focus on Topaz stories and talk more about that. But Max Chang, I want to bring you in here. You were instrumental with the Spike 150 celebration and this emphasis on no longer forgetting the Japanese, excuse me, the Chinese railroad workers. Um, and now, of course, you've been involved in this exhibit at the Capitol. Um, tell me how you got involved in all this. Thanks, Nick. Uh, first of all, our poet laureate, who uh, Paisley Rechtal, uh, she actually contacted me. And Ruth had uh, talked to her about stories of Top the Topaz stories. And I just, and she contacted me and I happened to be going out to Berkeley for a anniversary of the 50th anniversary of the Asian American studies program at UC Berkeley, where I'm an alum. And so I met up with Ruth for brunch and about it. And I felt how important it was for Utahns, especially Utah students to learn about this history and from a point of view that helps humanize this whole experience. So I talked to Ruth and said, we should bring this exhibit to Utah. And we went and we worked with uh, primarily Brad Westwood, a historian, senior historian at the Department of Cultural Community Engagement. And here we are, um, almost two years later, a little over two years later, actually, uh, because the pandemic uh, delayed us a little bit, but we have this incredible exhibit, very moving, somber, sometimes inspiring exhibit, um, telling the stories, and it will be running through the end of this year. So tell me a little bit about this. Is it, I presume it's mostly photographic, but are there also audio recordings or other art pieces? Uh, there's actually, it's mostly based on stories. Okay. And stories that we gathered from Topaz survivors or their descendants. And whenever possible, we uh, incorporated personal family photos that have not been shared publicly before. Um, and so it's, there's no audio component. It's, it's a sort of a visual storytelling exhibit. Okay, so tell me, tell me a couple of the stories that perhaps stand out to you. I, I think most of our listeners probably are at least superficially aware of what happened to Japanese Americans. And like you said, your own family told stories that weren't necessarily overtly political, but what are some of your favorites from, from what folks can see up at the Capitol? That's a really tough question. It's like asking <laughs> you to pick which child is your favorite. Oh. I mean, I've, been I've been living with these stories for three years and I see something special in each one, but um, I'll, I'll give it a shot. 
Um, there, there's one story by uh, a, a Nisei fellow, actually he's Sansei, sorry, Sansei third generation um, in the Bay Area, Norman Hayashi. He was two to five years old in the camp and um, he came to our Topaz Stories workshop in 2018. And I could sense that there was a lot going on there, but he, he could only remember these a few fragments. You know, he was so young. And so there was a list of about five very fragmentary memories he had, but I, I kind of stuck with him and kept, I won't say pestering, but I, I really was, I really wanted to get something from him because I, I felt that there was all this emotion, you know. And finally, several months later, he sent me three amazing photographs, which I used in the, the story. And he just kind of wrote about them and about his life. So I took that and I sort of patched together everything and created a story called Every Little Moment about his family and the impact that the incarceration had on his entire life and his family. His mother, um, you know, died quite young. She um, had a lot of responsibility because his, his dad relocated, he resettled from the camp to work uh, in the, I think it was the Midwest to earn money to support the family. So he was gone for much of the, the camp years. So she had to take care of the, she had uh, three, was it three? One, yeah, three boys, three little boys. And then she was also supporting the parents. Wow. So so that was a huge burden on her. Did she pass away at the camp while in no, camp? No, after no, the war. After? after the war. No, that's fascinating that someone was so young and they sort of have what might be a very impressionistic remembrance and then turning that into a story. Yeah, um, I think that almost gave it more power, you know. Yeah. You could see the sort of the ramifications of those early experiences on him today, you know, and throughout well, his life. Not to be overly Freudian, but little kids, more id, less superego, right? So be a very interesting, <laughs> very interesting interpretation of, of what they experienced. Max Chang, bring you back in here. Um, I saw a film a while back, a documentary film and one aspect of that film were Japanese Americans who were interned in these various camps like Topaz, who often moved to the Midwest and changed their names to become, in effect, seemingly Chinese as a way to avoid the persecutions. Uh, to be honest with you, I don't know much about that uh, aspect, but I do want to okay. uh, kind of go back and share with you what story really impacted me when I first read stories that uh, Ruth sent Please. me, and it's called um, A Doll with Eight Band-Aids. And the first photograph that is there is somewhat of like this uh, porcelain doll. Its crown of its head is broken, the face is cracked, and it has a large Band-Aid on the forehead. And the bottom picture is actually this young girl waiting, dressed up to the nines. The whole family is all dressed up to the nines with a pile of luggage, um, just like on the sidewalk, maybe in front of their home or so forth, but I'm not sure exactly where they are. And they're waiting for a bus to Tan Tanferan, which was a racehorse or racetrack where they had to stay until the, the camps were finished. And the doll, she's holding this doll. And I wanted to read you the story. It's, it's fairly short. It's more of a, a poem. Oh, please. Um, eight bands, 
eight, excuse me, eight bands AIDS yellowed, crackle spread like a spider web, tattooed over the face, around the eyes of a doll of 77 years, a concentration camp survivor, along with his owners, a girl then five, now 82. This could be a pretext for cross-cultural aesthetics, the nobility of endurance, wabi and sabi, embedded in the passage of plastics through time, a model of a minority triumphant, or not. The doll's eyes bigger than her mouth, she's seen so much, said so little. Now, when we see most of the uh, survivors of this incarceration, they are now older, they're in their late 70s, 80s, even during the century mark. But I think what really helps humanize or really hits is that a young seven-year-old girl, like just a year at that time, just a year older than my youngest daughter, is holding this doll tightly and held it on for so long. And we ripped away a good portion of people's lives, and in particular, children's lives. And the lack of of due process, the true stripping of civil liberties of Japanese American citizens of our country were just taken away with 9066, um, the, the, the um, order 9066, executive order 9066 by President Roosevelt issued on February 19th, 80 years ago in 1942. And that's why Senator Iwamoto and Representative Karen Kwan in the House are sponsoring SB 58 to have that as a day of remembrance, which so far has passed the Senate unanimously has now been sent to the House for its first reading. Again, this seems like a, it, I, I don't wanna sound <clears throat> morbid, but it seems like that's a fairly small thing for our legislature to do, to recognize that this happened. I wondered, I, and I guess I'll ask you, Max, in creating this exhibit, you know, today we see this rise in hate against especially Chinese Americans as we roll through the pandemic. We've all been through the experience of the hatred of Muslims and people from the Middle East. It seems like some of these issues haven't gone away. And I wonder in, in planning and staging and hanging this exhibition at the state capitol, any, any, anything that came to your mind or stood out in terms of how to create this? for a wide audience that isn't primarily Asian American? Nick, that's a great question. You know, first of all, let's look at the rise of hate. And while many of the hate is directed towards Chinese and Chinese Americans or of, of ancestry, the Asian American umbrella is so broad and so diverse that those of other ethnicities, whether it's Japanese, Korean, Filipino, Southeast Asians, are also being attacked. And so something that is related to this exhibit, I believe helps demonstrate that this happens because of how someone looks different. And it really makes it very, you know, for example, when we did the Chinese uh, railroad workers, we had great support from all members of the Asian American community. And when we do this, it's the same thing. We are getting support from all members of the Asian community. And for those who are coming for a broader audience, we chose the Capitol because A, it is the great centerpiece of our state. 
and also, you know, hopefully we'll be opening up. It is also the number one um, destination for students and field trips. Good point. Go through and seeing this um, exhibit, we hope that will help and create some empathy, um, some, of course, additional knowledge of what happened years ago and that it could indeed happen again unless we learn from our kids. Let's hope so. And we can start with the kids. I like that approach. Ruth Sasaki, bring you back in here. You curated these Topaz stories yourself. You work as a writer. How long did it take you to assemble all these and, and to do this work? Well, I was brought into the project in early 2018. And at that, okay. at that time, the volunteers uh, of the Friends of Topaz, a volunteer group in the San Francisco area that uh, supported fundraising for the museum, they had started the collection uh, mostly by sharing their own family stories. So at that time, 2018, there, there were a handful of stories and we made a major effort to uh, you know, reach out to our networks and collect more stories. We had a, a workshop, a writing workshop, and through that workshop, we, we brought in other people. Um, so our main motivation was to find the stories wherever they were and to preserve them before the survivors passed, because with every year, their numbers decrease. At the same time, I think in connection to the question you asked Max, one of my main motivations was this was a time, 2018, when the administration was targeting groups of people based on their country of origin or their race or their religion. And I think one of the main reasons why the Nisei generation started opening up about their experiences during the war was because they didn't want the same mistake to happen in the future. And they wanted to make sure that the government did not do the same thing to other groups that had been done to them in World War II. So I think the all of those things, the, the sort of the current climate against immigrants and refugees, the surge in anti-Asian violence, all of that was very much a motivating factor. And um, my motivation, uh, these are not oral histories. They're not, you know, they're, they're not history. They're stories. Right. And I believe in the power of stories to create empathy. And I thought that you know, given this climate where no matter how many generations our family has been in this country, we're still viewed as foreigners that don't belong here. I felt it was very important to present this very personal, very human side to the Japanese American incarceration so people could understand it on a very personal level and see how many different types of people were a diverse group, even within the Japanese American community. So, you know, among the Asian American community, that's multiplied. We're all different and we're all human. Uh, you, raise a, you raise a good point that the othering still goes on. This is Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns. We're talking with author Ruth Sasaki, who is the curator of Topaz Stories. Also with us, Max Chang, who also helped put together the third floor gallery Southwest Wing year-long exhibition about Topaz and Japanese-Americans internment in the camp. 
Uh, and also we're talking about SB 58, which is the bill going through the legislature so far fairly smoothly through the legislature, Day of Remembrance observing the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. We have a few more minutes. Ruth or Max, I'm not sure to whom to throw this question, but are other camps involved in similar collecting of stories and similar work such as you are doing with Topaz? Do you know? I think uh, many of the camps have, uh, you know, annual pilgrimages. Um, of course, during the lockdown, they were virtual. And a lot of events um, geared towards, you know, gathering survivors and having them share their stories. I don't know if there's a um, a formal story collecting project going on with the camps, but I think all of them, all of the survivors and descendants of camps are pushing in this direction. They really want their stories preserved and shared. It does seem like a time when <clears throat> we could all benefit from a little bit more history and a little bit greater understanding, that's for sure. A few minutes left, uh, and one thing I want to not overlook, and Max, I guess I would ask you this, about um, Utah retiring number 22, which was Wat Misaka's jersey number. Um, that seems relevant in the middle of all this, his career in college sports. Absolutely. Actually, um, they retired his number 20. 22 is actually Arnie, his teammate, Arnie Farron. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not a sports guy. I apologize. <laughs> you know, a un unbelievable um, Utah. Uh, he played at Weber College two years, and then he helped lead the University of Utah to two national championships, one in 1944 uh, with the NCAA championship. And then after he served in the U.S. military, actually in Japan during its occupation following the war, he uh, led them to the NIT championship in 1947 in Madison Square Garden. And actually back then, the NIT championship was much more prestigious than the NCAA. And that's where he held um, NCAA Player of the Year, Ralph Beard of Kentucky, just one point. But for many years, his number was not retired. It did not meet certain criteria, for example, uh, related to, to um, retirement. And that included, like, for example, playing on an international team. And of course, he played during World War II, where the Olympics were suspended. He was not a starter. And the reason why he wasn't a starter was because every time he would go out, the opposing team would boo him so loudly uh, because of his uh, descent. So the coach would actually put him in, would sub him in. And once he would sub him in, he would never take him out because he was such a defensive stalwart. So he did meet among others. And finally, you know, when Mark Harlan, the new athletic director, came in and took over, I saw an opportunity. You know, this was back in 2019, the same time, you know, we had just finished a very successful Spike 150 in the recognition of the Chinese road workers. I saw an opportunity to have a fresh start. And, you know, some people had talked to me, say we need to put the protests and so forth. So I said, this is not the right way of doing it. The right way of doing it is to educate. And so I really just helped introduce Mark to Watt's story. And of course, he had learned a little bit. He was, and Watt was, of course always part of the university athletic department. He was at games and so forth. And this is right before he passed. And we started sharing the story. I kind of explained to him my, my philosophy and also my reasoning why he should be given an exception. Um, and of course, Watt, by the way, was the first 
person of color to play in non-white player to play in what is now the NBA. He is the Jackie Robinson of the NBA. And so there were so many historical things. So I laid that out for him. And of course, there were others in the community. Senator Janie Uemoto on behalf of the family really also pushed from a different angle and others came from different angles to do this. And Mark took the time to really understand the situation. Then he did the right thing. He went to the people at the University of Utah that are to make sure that they were on board. That was that made it an easy decision. So it was announced back in 2020, and it was going to happen during the 2020-21 season. But because of the pandemic, again, we were delayed until January 22nd of this year. And during halftime, they they unveiled number 20. Now, 20 isn't significant because that was his original number in 1944. But when he came back from the war, others like Arnie Ferrand, his great teammate and friend for so long, were automatically placed back on the team. But Watt had to try out again. Wow. But actually given away. Well, actually, it's 21 is the original number. Excuse me. 21 is the original Yeah. And that number was given away. So he was given 20. But nonetheless, that's the number that they, he he won with the national national um, invitational tournament. But it's significant that he had to do other things that his teammates did not. Right. Interesting. So in his case, he he's from Ogden originally. I don't believe his family was ever in any of the internment camps, but in his own life story, he clearly experienced prejudice, wouldn't be served in restaurants, people crossing the street. I remember him saying uh, when he would come down the street, but uh, I mean, he persevered. Uh, pretty cool. And again, right after the war, to be the Jackie Robinson, because he was playing professional basketball about the same time Jackie Robinson joined in baseball, right after the war, being Japanese-American, that had to have been tough. I think indeed. And I think, you know, you get a lot of extra spotlight on him. There's a lot of pressure within his own community. In many ways, he was a hero to those incarcerated in camps such as Topaz, um, because there was playing at that time. But only those along the West Coast were actually um, transported and incarcerated. Those who were in Utah did. And it's interesting, folks in uh, Japanese Americans, although they weren't per se Americans then in Hawaii, weren't put into camps. Um, it just was the West Coast of the United States. I had a grandmother who actually lived up in Bellingham, and she was so afraid in World War II, she moved to the Midwest, afraid of Japanese invasion in the Seattle area or whatever might happen. Uh, my understanding, one quick question, and then I want to end talking about SB 58. My understanding is that Watt Misaka was offered to play on the Globetrotters and turned them down. I think that's kind of fun, if that's true. Yes, it is true. And that he ended up <laughs> that he wanted to come back. And I think he just, uh, I don't want to misspeak, but I think it was he went back to accounting, but I may be incorrect there. But he just came back to pursue his a regular professional, non-professional, non-basketball life. Yeah, I came back to college, right? It's kind of cool. I think he had a break at that point, but maybe to grad school. But then again, that one, I'm not 100% sure. Oh, thank you. A few minutes left. Ruth Sasaki, bring you back in here. SB58, uh, any advice for our listeners beyond what we always say? Contact your elected officials and tell them to support this bill? Are there other official actions or anything that you want to endorse or suggest? Um, I am not really, I don't really have any specific 
actions, but um, I do urge people to support this bill, either by contacting their senators or by talking to people, emailing friends, because I think it is very important that we continually and you know every year remind people since these are the kinds of stories that tend to get buried mm. and they're the kind of lessons of history that we tend to forget. Yeah, too often the history is written by the assassins, right? The winners get to write the history. Um, Max, in a couple of minutes left, if, if I remember my history, we had what, 120, 125,000 people, Japanese Americans, many, 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 most were American citizens who were just rounded up, as you mentioned, had to live in horse stalls for a while in Santa Ana. And this lasted for many years from, I want to say, again, February 42, all the way through the rest of the war for folks to live in a concentration camp. That's correct. And indeed, Santa Ana was one of the places. But for those who went to Topaz, they went to the racehorse racetrack Tanferan uh, first. And then there is a story, as I call, recall, and Ruth, please correct me if I'm in, I recall incorrectly. But there is one where they talked about how where they got married at Tanferan and their honeymoon was wow. a horse stall, literally. And those are really what I find out that the dehumanization of a group of people based on ancestry, which is really, I don't believe, is what anyone really think is a true American action. No, and you'd have to have a lot of optimism to get married and have your honeymoon in a ho- in a horse stall after you've just been forcibly, you know, removed from your home and forced to sell your business or whatever it might be. I also want to leave listeners with this, that Topaz had, I believe, 8,000 people who were concentrated there, which made it one of the largest cities in the state during World War II. It's kind of frightening, actually. Uh, And of course, I would point out the Japanese Americans were further disadvantaged when the Salt Palace came in and much of Japantown in downtown Salt Lake City was just flat out obliterated to make room for the Salt Palace. And again, the expansion of the Salt Palace, the plan was to wipe out the rest of what had been Japantown. Uh, But blissfully, those design plans were changed and the Buddhist temple is still there, the Japanese American Buddhist temple. I guess that's what I want to leave it with. But I wanted to just tell everyone, please go up and see this show. It's up on the third floor in the third floor gallery, southwest wing of the Capitol. It's going to be there all year. Go see this show. And I'm sure after you see the show, you will want to speak out and encourage the swift passage and governor's signature to SB 58. I think it's the very least we can do. Ruth Sasaki, thank you for taking time to join us. Thank you so much for having us. You are a writer based in California, and you are the curator of the Topaz stories that folks will see up at the Capitol building. So thank you for taking time to be with us today. Max Chang, thank you, as always. Appreciate your work on this as well. Thank you. And one thing I'd like to add for our listeners, not only go up to the Capitol, but go down to Delta, go see the Topaz Museum, and then go out to the actual site. And this is somewhat related to our previous um, guests. But, you know, as you know, we had Lake Bonneville and Lake Bonneville was going all the way down, including in the Delta area. So this camp is actually laid on the old bed of Lake Bonneville. And the soil is so lomous, so soft. You just sink in it as you go in. And just imagine the stink, the bugs, the mosquitoes that all permeate that area. 
know, really what the unlivable conditions they are in. And that should hopefully also give us enough empathy, empathy and understanding of why SB 58 should pass. Well said. I do encourage people to see the museum. I love the artwork. There's artwork by Japanese American artists created while they were at the camp. That was one thing that really touched me. Thank you to you both for taking time to be on Radioactive. Ruth Sasaki, Max Chang, hope to have you back again. This is Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns. Shout out to Laura Jones, who produces the show. And shout out to all y'all who listen to krcl.org. We'll be back tomorrow at 6 p.m. for another episode of Radioactive. And of course, you can always stream our shows. Check it out, krcl.org. Follow the links to Radioactive. You can share, you can post, you can listen again. It's as simple as that. Keep it tuned. I'm Nick Burns.